Welcome to West Virginia Beer Roads, a podcast all about beer from a West Virginia perspective. I'm Erin McCoy, here with my podcast partner, Charles Bakwe. Well, here we are about a month after the close of the West Virginia 2022 legislative session. That's always a good time to review the passage of any legislation affecting the beverage alcohol industry in the state. Our guest on West Virginia Beer Roads today is Chuck Johnson. Chuck is an attorney with Frost Brown Todd Law Firm here in Charleston, and he regularly follows beverage alcohol legislation for various clients. Chuck Johnson, welcome back to the West Virginia Beer Roads podcast. Aaron and Charles, thank you for having me. So, hey, Chuck, uh, do we have any significant alcohol industry legislation passed this year? Well, the only bill that passed through and was signed by the governor is House Bill 4848. Those provisions included what exactly? Well, generally, they have some new private club licenses. Uh, We have uh, markup uh, changes for liquor sold at private clubs. We have uh, changes to the requirements for delivery services. Uh, We have a new change for special events and sales of alcohol. And then we have some changes to the beer licensing requirements. Well, let's take uh, those topics one by one, and let's talk a bit about each, really. So first, how did this bill affect private club licenses? Uh, Private club licenses, uh, you know, last year in House Bill 2025, we had over 20 kinds of private club licenses. This year, we have the following new licenses. Um, We have a private bakery, which was intended to allow... Uh, bakers that use alcohol in their products to Mm -hmm. do so. Mm -hmm. We have private cigar shops. We have private food trucks. Mm -hmm. We have a private hotel, Tweak. And we have private college sports stadiums. Nice. So in your opinion, what would you consider significant for the market? Well, for the market, the uh, private college sports stadium, obviously, is going to be a big deal for the Marshall and WVU fans, Mm -hmm. allowing for those kind of tailgating with liquor sales mm-hmm. inside the event. So private club, let's just be clear for listeners out there, private club really means the addition probably of the ability to sell mixed drinks and, and liquor, you know, whiskey and stuff. It's not necessarily about beer sales, which they already had in stadiums. And wine, I think they already had in stadiums. That's correct. That's correct. It does expand the horizons for, you know, um, private college sports stadiums. Yeah. That definitely sounds like something that, you know, in particular, college sport fan connoisseurs will look forward to. So is there another significant one that you think is going to hit the market? Yes. With the explosion of all the private club licenses in the past two years, the markup for the sale of spirits at private clubs has increased Oh, from from 10 percent to 15 percent. Wow, that's a large increase. Yeah, and that does, doesn't sound good. That means uh, not got anything to do with sports stadiums or any of these new licenses. This is for every private club, all, you know, however many thousand there are in the state now. Yeah, That's correct. We've really expanded the scope of private clubs in West Virginia. And it's not clear how that increase in the markup will filter out to your the price of to your the consumer. Right. Right. But there's already a significant markup, but this has got to add to it. Oh, absolutely, which essentially translates to some pricier drinks for people all around, right? That's right. 
Well, back during the height of the pandemic, the state began letting bars and restaurants and retail stores, they allowed them to begin making alcohol deliveries, utilizing the services of third-party delivery companies such as DoorDash or Uber Eats, things like that. But that never really got off the ground, did it, Chuck? Well, it had a, a, a lot of requirements in it, Charles, and what they've done this year is tried to tweak those to make it more friendly for delivery services. For example, they have actually eliminated the $5 convenience fee that the delivery servers had to charge the right. customer. Mm -hmm. And then they actually made it uh, more broad on how you could verify the ID of the recipient of the alcohol. So that instead of having a scanned in ID, they made it, you know, a legal verification system. So a little more accessible, possibly. More, more like what you have at a bar or restaurant already, that they have to check your ID when you're, but they don't have to scan it or anything. That's correct. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So the, 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 so if you're an Uber Eats person and you go deliver, uh, including some alcohol to a, to a customer out in the field that's bought it at a restaurant or whatever, then they just have to check to see that that ID, the person receiving that product that comes to the door is 21 or older. That's correct, and I think there was some privacy issues and some, you know, security issues they were concerned with there, so right. that's right. Yeah, so that does sound like an advantage, and maybe now mm -hmm. uh, some of the bars and restaurants will begin more using this delivery service with third parties. That, mm -hmm. Let's hope that that's uh, what happens. I think that's right. We'll have to wait and see. I think it's more friendly to the delivery services, certainly. Beer and wine festivals seem to have really taken off over the past decade in West Virginia. And today we're even seeing liquor served at more public festivals. So how did House Bill 4848 affect alcohol sales at festivals? Well, interestingly, at fairs and festivals, as a result of this bill, you will be able to sell for off-premises consumption for the first time. So if you sell sealed containers, it can be either beer liquor or wine, depending on the festival, mm -hmm. then those types of sales can be for off-premises consumption. So it, it expands for consumers and also for the people selling the, the beverage, the options. Yeah. I mean, we've always liked, I know in Charleston, we've had the wine and all that jazz. That festival, they could always, the wineries that showed up could, could always not only sample free, give you a free sample, a taste, mm -hmm. but then what they were really trying to do was sell you bottles. Mm -hmm. But breweries at festival, at beer festivals, could never sell cans or bottles and, or growlers or something to go. And certainly the distilleries now that they can do festivals, they've never had that right to sell their bottles. But now you're saying they do when this law is in effect. That's right. And it gives the people that are sampling beverages for the first time the really exciting option to take some home with them and it expands the options for consumers considerably oh yeah and changes a little bit for breweries and the fact that it, you know if somebody likes that sample then you know they're going to need to have those cans available for those consumers to take home with them so that's a little bit different as for for them prepping for you know a festival in general for you consumers that enjoy what they've tasted and are like hey i want to buy this bag it up and i think it may cure one problem that i've heard from the people that attend festivals as far as the manufacturers that they're not profitable and this may take it over the top sure let, let them have some actual sales at the festival which i mean makes sense from a consumer standpoint yeah and there's another law that allows 
for private clubs to have their own special festivals now. So that goes hand in hand with this. What the law says is that private clubs can now apply for and obtain a special license to have similar to a fair and festival. So it's it expands the options to make that more okay. flexible. So for instance, if you're a brewery who their taproom has a private club license as well, they could bring in all the other breweries to their tap room or premises, their their yard or whatever that's licensed there, and they could then uh, have all those other beers there just for that one day or weekend or whatever the license would, the festival license would cover, right? That that would be pr- possible, and I think it's just one of those wrinkles in the law that we, we have the flexibility now. And that encompasses not only draft but can and, and or bottled beer sales. And, as, and growlers if they're sealed containers. Nice. Well, I know this year wasn't a big year for beer legislation, at least from the breweries and dis, uh, and the distributors. I mean, neither one of them, either the Brewers Guild or the beer distributors, really didn't seem to have a push on a lot of, of things this year. But you said 4848 did affect brewery licensing. In what way did that happen? Well, they did loosen up the licensure requirements in a couple of respects for both brewers and resident brewers. And... Previously, you had to demonstrate you're a, a suitable person of good moral character. <laughs> well, that would rule out a lot of us. <laughs> yes, yes. And, and I'm not going to, you know, no comments, I'm not under oath right now. So, uh, but now it's, com- it's replaced with a very specific standard that says, A, you're not convicted of a felony in the past, past five years. You're not in- convicted of a crime involving fraud, dishonesty, or deceit and you're not convicted of a crime violating alcohol-related laws of West Virginia or the federal laws. Right, and that would be pretty easy for the state regulators to, or the ABCA, to check because they could go to the criminal databases and they'd find out if if you were lying or not on that form. I mean, it would be very simple. They don't have to rule whether you're moral or not. That's (laughs) correct, and it it really makes it a, a... bright line test that you can check the box Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and you meet this or you don't. One of the things is when I talked to some of the folks at ABCA, they had a pretty good idea of what a person of good moral character was. It's just that the other people that were wanting to apply did not always have that. Sure. Everybody needs to check. It's pretty ambiguous. really. (laughs) (laughs) Well, last on your list, Chuck, you mentioned there was a provision about sales at liquor stores. What was that in particular? Well, oddly enough, there is now a change to the licensure requirements that liquor stores no longer have to place the liquor in a bag when they sell a bottle of liquor. You mean I can't brown bag it? (laughs) You can, but you don't have to. Yeah, and that's very new. So it doesn't have to be in any kind of bag then, whether a plastic or a brown bag, paper bag. It's just that you can hold that bottle in your hand and take it on out of the store with the rest of your whatever you bought. That's correct. And it's just one of those tweaks that, uh, you know, West Virginia is evolving its laws and it's no longer seen as something that is promoting the abuse of alcohol. It's a normal thing for us to do that. Yeah, because I think so many of the the, the liquor stores anymore are not standalone liquor stores. They're in, you know, they're in the drug stores or whatever you call them, the pharmacies. They're in the grocery stores. And and those (laughs) places... 
had to double bag, I guess, in the past because you know they put everything in a, some kind of a plastic sack for you to take out. But then you had to, but your liquor had to be in a brown bag inside that sack, <laughs> which was like readily identifiable. Oh, hey, no, I didn't buy liquor, but oh, yes, I did. Well, uh, with the exception of the higher markup on liquor, the provisions of House Bill forty eight forty eight all seem to be pretty positive. I mean, it looks like they're trying. You know, the legislature is trying. But I think we now need to focus, though, on some of the changes we still need to help our uh, small breweries uh, develop the markets and improve their uh, improve our overall craft beer climate, our sales climate. Chuck, would you think you have a few more things that you'd say need to be done or should be addressed? Oh, absolutely, Charles. And, and you know, we, we're making progress. We just got to keep up the momentum. Um, you know, contract brewing for, is only allowed right now for a regular brewer and not for a, 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 re, a resident brewer, which is odd. Um, we need to have collaboration beers that are allowed by law so that the labeling and the collaborations are enhanced by the current regulatory environment. Um, you know, we need to have alterna alternating proprietorships so that the, the bigger breweries can support the smaller breweries coming on board. Mm -hmm. Yeah, let's, let's stop right there and let me just address these because those are all kind of connected that really help the industry grow and advance and help small people get started in, in, in brewing, whether it be for contracting, collaborations, certainly the alternating proprietorships. With people probably don't know what that necessarily means, and that's just that two different licensed breweries can use the same brewing equipment as long as they use it separately during different times and don't mix their ingredients and products. Basically, I brew on days, Monday, Tuesday, you brew on Thursday, Friday. Yeah, I mean, we've all heard of, a lot of people have heard of what we call gypsy brewers and things like that, the small startup guy that comes in. He, get, he, has, a, he has a brewery license, but he comes in and brews w at somebody else's equipment because they can say, okay, on this Wednesday, the alternating proprietorship or something is now you're doing that, and I'm sure the small guy pays a fee to the big guy to allow that to happen, but still, that's legal. It's been legal federally for a long time. In many states, it's legal, but in West Virginia, they've not allowed that kind of flexibility. Well, and what that allows is for a startup brewery to get started without having the huge capital investment, so it really allows the uh, introduction of new breweries in West Virginia mm -hmm. on a very reasonable basis, and, and the regulators would be able to find a way to properly regulate, regulate. Yeah, I mean, other states have handled that well, and I don't think that's an issue. And, and it's same thing on the collaborations in West Virginia. I mean, we have what we call collaboration beers, but it's technically not a full collaboration because they're not, I mean, two breweries can come together at one, one of those two breweries' places, brew together that day, but that beer can only be, pro uh, that product can only be sold by the brewery that owns that equipment that's at that licensed location. The other brewery that's collaborating cannot sell that beer. Uh, and, and if you had a true collaboration allowance in there, they would find a way to let both share that and they would apportion out the, the amount of beer that mm -hmm. each would get. And sell and, both places. And then the taxes would be paid separately by the two breweries or whatever that came together, I right. would think. Well, and, you know, not only can they not sell it, but their name really can't be on the label. Right. So, you know, and not getting into the weeds as far as yeah. who is the distributor between the two breweries. There ought to be a way, because currently what we do is we have two different beers 
and beer A is for brewery A and beer B is for brewery B, and it's very complicated for them to pull right. off. It is. Most states pull this off, and it's very reasonable to do this. Yeah, and the yeah. same thing on contract brewing that uh, you were mentioning, it's legal for a non-West Virginia brewery to contract brew for a West Virginia brewery, but a West Virginia-based brewery cannot contract for another West Virginia-based brewery, cannot make beer to another one right now. That's true, and it really says resident brewers cannot contract brew. So we don't have any big West Virginia breweries. Mm -hmm. So it's really, if you scratch your head, it doesn't make much sense. Yeah, Yeah. it is confusing. I agree. And it it needs to be cleared up and all made as flexible as possible so that to help business grow. Mm -hmm. You know, it wouldn't change the taxation situation. It wouldn't change the amount of beer brewed particularly, but it would allow more business development, more small business development. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, you know, back to sort of that list about some items that we need to look for for future growth. You know, one thing that's, I think, prominent with local breweries is having more than one manufacturing site per license and or more than one tap room for brew pubs. It seems to be sort of a gray area. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? Yes, currently the laws do not allow for a brewer or a resident brewer to have more than one manufacturing site or more than one license. Mm -hmm. And, you know, most manufacturing industries do not discourage growth of the manufacturing uh, product in the state. And, And this doesn't seem to make much sense. So we would encourage having more than one manufacturing site per licensee, and you could have separate licenses the sure, same sure, people sure. because they have a lot of tied up in their brand identity mm-hmm. and their beers. Sure. And, I mean. and be able to brew at more than one location is really positive for the state. Mm-hmm. And some of these people are shoehorned into very tight locations that this would be a real uh, way for them to expand. Sure. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean. So what we're facing is if you're a, a small brewery in West Virginia and you're kind of at capacity where you are in the size of your building because you started small, but now you've got a lot of opportunity to grow, you're positive about the market, you've got the money to expand, the state won't let you open a second brewery. They say, no, I'm sorry, you got to stay with one, which means you'd have to move the original one to where you want to make the new and one. And or but, change the name. Uh, yeah, I mean, just, well, yeah, start a whole new company, but that, that doesn't make any sense. And, yeah, it's just, it's very anti-business growth. I mean, it doesn't make any, like you said, Chuck, you know, other industry, any other industry, you encourage people to open up second or third locations if they wanted to and and you know we can still comply with the other laws as far as the maximum number of gallons you can produce as a resident brewer Mm -hmm. or the maximum number of gallons you can self-distribute we could add those up even if that's what is required to get this passed but we don't want to limit the growth of these craft brewers no, it it seems backwards economically to do that you know brewers in general are just positive for the state and all around i mean they they bring economic growth they bring jobs they bring you know local sales and bring tourism i mean it it all around is is a positive thing that should be encouraged and nobody wins the the distributors the manufacturers the consumers nobody wins with the current state of law Mm -hmm. and and neither does the state Mm -hmm. you know encompassed in that is an issue with having more than one tap room for for brew pubs which is kind of a gray area um as i understand and of course i'm not a lawyer but can you elaborate on that a little bit because it 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 does seem to be an issue that a brew pub can't just say hey i'm going to open up this tap room in another area in the state 
Well, the only thing that resident brewers are allowed to do is open a private manufacturing club. So to open a new tap room, let's say it's a brew pub, that's viewed as having to be at the manufacturing site. And as we said before, you can have more than one manufacturing site. So again, it's one of those uh, (laughs) scratch your head kind of things, you know, where a, a, an existing brewery that has such a good reputation should be able to open a separate tap room in another location. Yeah. And that's one of the big growth areas in so many other States. I'm in North Carolina a lot. You see down there, the popular breweries, the guys that's got it going on, you know, they're in one town. Now they've, open tap rooms not other breweries but just their tap rooms in maybe three other cities in north carolina right so not another manufacturer yeah it's not another brewery it's just the tap room Mm -hmm. that's supplied by the original brewery because they have capacity Mm -hmm. and as long as they do and then some of them of course open second breweries too but which we can't do so uh, it's just yeah we're just not wanting it's like we don't want our breweries to grow it's It's like our hands are tied and it is very unfair because it, it all around seems very beneficial Well, with what craft beer does for West Virginia, I know at least four people that would love to expand their operations and can't. Right. So this is Because of the way the current law is written and all of the things that we've previously discussed. Absolutely. And Mm -hmm. it really is discouraging for people that want to invest and grow their business in West Virginia. So another issue that we have is, is, you know, we've got this great Canal Valley Homebrew Club of many other homebrew clubs across the state. And beer appreciation groups want to meet, you know, to have their tastings, have their meetings, etc. And it's an issue. We don't have anywhere to meet. You can't go into public venues because you're not able to bring beer or liquor into those places. So what what do we do for those people that that want to have these types of meetings that want to bring in home beer or a home brewed beer and and have a meeting and a tasting what is our our solution there because that is definitely a problem here in West Virginia well it's a problem but it's an easy fix because all you need is um, a carve out from the licensure footprint that is a regular or designated carve out you know certain nights for certain areas, you can meet. Meaning, have, though, but where? Where are we meeting? What, at an established the, retail facility that they can have a carve-out. And this is by rule. So they can have regular meetings at certain limited locations within their facility. Limited being the key word. And then, if that, as long as they advise the commissioner of that, mm-hmm. that would be acceptable. And then you don't have any blurred lines between the retail side and the homebrew side. I mean, Chuck, are you saying then that if they would approve that meeting space, that then the homebrew club members could bring in untaxed homebrew and sample that homebrew within that area? Certainly the bar wouldn't be allowed to sell any homebrew. That's not the question. But just to have it in the premises is it would be allowed in that specific area because that would be the carve-out you're talking about. Yes, it would no longer be for that space in that time a licensed premises they could do it and then you could also have beer that they didn't purchase on the premises there so that 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 works perfectly for the beer appreciation societies the homebrew societies 
And that's how we grow the industry because that's yeah. the very start of what mm-hmm. we're trying to do. Well, Agreed. So many breweries around the country that, you know, sponsor homebrew clubs in a sense. You know, they hold their competitions at the brewery the pr- premises somewhere. You know, they're, they're encouraging that because they want those homebrewers. That might be where they ne- hire their next assistant brewer is from sure. the homebrew club members that they get to know and see their quality. Yeah. That's cool. Glad. I hope we can do that kind of a carve. That would be a good piece of legislation. I agree. Well, I just want to emphasize to everyone listening that we still have a long list of items that need fixed so we can free up our small breweries to better compete. And we've just touched on a few of them. And I think maybe one more that, that I think needs fixed is, you know, to free our small breweries from the requirement to sign these lifetime franchise agreements with beer distributors. That is, if they want to use a beer distributor. We're lucky in West Virginia they do allow our small breweries to self-distribute, and they don't have to sign. But I think one thing that's keeping a brewery from signing with distributors is this fact that they're scared to go, and they're tiny little breweries looking at a big distributor, and they don't, they're worried they will get lost, and they don't want to sign this lifetime thing. And if we could figure some way to let small breweries have more flexibility with those kinds of uh, franchise territorial agreements that you know, that would be a wonderful advance for our small breweries, too. And it's good to see that the legislature is making some fixes here and there. But but one big priority for beer consumers that has definitely not been fixed and would be allowing us to have beer shipped directly to our homes. And it's not just for me wanting beer shipped to my house for breweries that I, I have an issue physically getting to because as small as West Virginia is, we you know are a broad state as far as reaching all of our breweries. You could drive five hours just to reach one. But it, another side of that is I have beer friends in other states that would love to have beer shipped to them from local West Virginia breweries and they they just can't get it and and I've been contacted several times hey how can I get this what do I do and I'm like you've got to come here and it's it's just it's a challenge that I I think definitely needs addressed well you know what's funny is that in West Virginia the wineries and cideries can do direct shipping Mm -hmm. and they have great success with Mm -hmm. marketing West Virginia ciders and West Virginia wines Mm -hmm. throughout the country I have a really hard time seeing the downside of of like how is it a negative thing to to have the ability to ship beer the state already gives us the right in the in the current statutes to bring beer in ourselves we can bring in up to three cases i think of untaxed beer at a time you bring it right in so why can't we ship in three cases of untaxed beer from another state that hadn't been, I mean, hadn't been paid in the West Virginia tax. Because that's, that's considered kind of de minimis. It doesn't matter that much to state revenue, the few little beers that we're going to bring in. And all of us, you know, have brought in beer when we travel to another state. We bring in a little bit of beer home. So we have really sort of deep-sixed the concept. But as a result, West Virginia is suffering. And it's not only yeah. consumers, it's the manufacturers and it's the retailers and distributors. Yeah. And there's a way to do this right. I mean, seriously, oh, I there's agree. a way to do this right. Let's do it. All right. How do we do it? It's the main question. Yeah, well, that's <laughs> going to have to be debated for an, at another time. <laughs> Let's get into some issues that are uh, affecting our local distilleries or small distilleries in the area and things that need to be accomplished that have we haven't quite gotten there yet. Can you dis- discuss that a little bit, Chuck? Well, two things that are sort of left on the table, uh, a couple of bills didn't pass. We're proposing that 
small distilleries, micro and mini distilleries, could sell their uh, liquor at local bars and restaurants. And that did not pass, but it makes perfect sense for West Virginia, and you could still assure the same markup for the local retailers. The other thing is um, we have nothing for ready-to-drink cocktails, and that has an explosion in the market across the country, and we're losing out both from the manufacturing side and from the consumer side in sure. West Virginia. right. Well, yeah. I mean, I, you know, as a craft beer drinker, I'm, I'm not great at mixing drinks, and that, that is something that I would enjoy. As a consumer, that would be great, a ready-to-drink cocktail. Well, and, and, you know, to get that in place, first thing you need is maybe tax parity so that if you have a mixed drink in a can, but the alcohol by volume is 4.5%, mm-hmm. maybe it should be taxed about the same amount as a, as a beer or as a cider. So uh, if I'm a brewery, am I going to support like the, the distilleries, you know, wanting lower taxes so they can compete more with me? <laughs> well, you know, when I go to Virginia and you can see the cideries and the beer and the ready-to-drink cocktails in the same aisle at the grocery store, it's a, it's a, a very good thing. It creates a lot of enthusiasm for consumers. Yeah. And I think it all, all ships rise. Yeah. Well, I think what you're saying, there's a, kind of maybe two different things it's not necessarily one is a taxation amount issue but the other would be just allowing lower abv products made by distillery to sell outside a licensed liquor store yeah there's two problems and one is just having some tax parity and that's a start and we could do that and see what happens but the rtd cocktails would have to be sold in the liquor store and then you know if we wanted to do the second step we could decide to have a low ABV alcohol definition adopted. Now, mm-hmm. the reason behind that is like in many states and across the country, the increase in popularity for RTD cocktails is two to 300%. And West Virginia is missing out for a couple of years already right. on that. Yeah, people may not realize that uh, the wine and wine and cider and uh, beer and then distilled spirits or whiskeys they're all taxed in different ways. Mm-hmm. They're taxed at different rates. I know, for instance, uh, one thing that brewers could benefit, small brewers could benefit in West Virginia, is if the state did what the federal did on the beer taxes. That there is a, if you're a small brewery, you have a much lower tax rate on your beer. So it's tiered taxes, than, federally. Yeah, than you do on a, if you're a large brewer. In West Virginia, a small brewer pays the highest rate. Mm-hmm. That's exactly right. And when the federal government did that, it was very beneficial. And the only thing we did in West Virginia is we tiered the license fee, but not the tax. Yeah. And I think you'll see, if you look at the, the growth of craft beer in West Virginia compared to other states, we're still way behind mm-hmm. the region on yeah. that. So we yeah. could really benefit from that. Mm-hmm. Chuck, thank you so much for bringing us these insights into our state legislation and what's going on, the good and the kind of bad or the things that we still need to do, certainly. Appreciate that. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for your insight. We've appreciated having you here as our guest today. Thank you for joining West Virginia Beer Roads. Thank you. This brings us to the close of another podcast. Remember, you can subscribe on Apple, Spotify, or your favorite podcast host. Thank you for listening to West Virginia Beer Roads. West Virginia Beer Roads is a production of BrilliantStream.com.